Hello and welcome to Recasting Religious Trauma. I'm your host, Christine Greenwald, licensed mental health therapist in private practice in rural Ohio. Today, I am super excited to share with you my interview with Dr. Laura Anderson. We had a fantastic time as two trauma therapists talking about the ins and outs of religious trauma, healing practice, and her upcoming new book. For a little background on Laura, she is a therapist, drama resolution and recovery coach, a writer, an educator, and a creator who specializes in complex trauma with a focus on domestic violence, sexualized violence, and religious trauma. She has a private practice in Nashville, Tennessee, and is the founder and director of the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, an online coaching company where she and other practitioners work with clients who have experienced high demand and high control religion adverse religious experiences, cults, and religious trauma. You might know Laura through the Religious Trauma Institute, which she co-founded in 2019. It has the goal of providing trauma-informed resources, consultation, and training to clinicians and other helping professionals who work with religious trauma survivors. Laura's first book, When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion, is being released this October 17th. 2023. She lives with her dog, Phoebe, in Nashville, Tennessee. I hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed recording it with her. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. I feel like everyone should probably know who you are, but, you know, just in case they don't, could you give us a little introduction to both your background and the kind of work that you're doing now? Yes. Well, first, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's good to be here today. And yes, I am. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson. I'm a licensed psychotherapist in Nashville, Tennessee. However, uh, my my therapy practice is very, very tiny because I focus most of my work nowadays working with uh, clients all over the world through trauma coaching. And I have a company that does the same, uh, the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. We um, we work primarily with people coming out of high control religions, cults, fundamentalism, purity culture, religious trauma, adverse religious experiences, all the things. Um, and so that's really fun. I'm the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute, uh, where we focus primarily on working with the more professional side of things, coaches, clinicians, advocates, things like that. And, um, I'm now also an author and a writer. So this is good too, um, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, and in, in terms of like how I got into this work, I, I would say my personal life really inspires my professional life. And so my interest in religious trauma, I mean, just purely kind of comes from my own experiences inside high control religion and my own process of, of getting out of that, navigating things like spiritual abuse, um, a lot of a lot of narcissistic um, abuse dynamics of power and control inside relationships and systems, and um, my own healing journey in that. And so, I, I, for me personally, I started noticing a lot of the dynamics of power and control within high control religion um, as I was getting out of a relationship with a domestically violent partner. And there was a day where I was looking in my journals and trying to tell the difference between like, who said what, did God say this or did my partner say this? Mm. And that really struck me as something that was like, oh, wow, the fact that I cannot tell like who said what, that that tells me something. 
And that was a big turning point for my own work um, on a personal level, but then being able to identify different things with clients. And I feel like in my, I don't know if you feel this way with my therapy practice, I feel like the right clients just always land in my office. Like I don't have to do much, um, you know, advertising. It's like, they just would land there. And so that would start to happen. But I will say in 2016, after the United States presidential election, I feel like there was a mass exodus from a lot of different churches and religions and groups. And that's where we started to see more public discourse around things like spiritual abuse, high control religions, a lot of disillusionment between what we had been taught versus what was being practiced. And that's where I I really see a turn in terms of like being able to have a public conversation as well as recognizing we need resources. We need therapists who are trained to understand this, that it's not just a bad church experience. It's not just one sinner with a perfect God, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I was really lucky enough to be able to connect with uh, so many other amazing professionals with the same passion and desire to treat religious trauma as trauma and and help as many people as we can. So that's like the teeny tiny short version of where I got to or how I got to where I'm at today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you yeah. and Brian Peck were maybe like the co-founders yes. of the Religious Trauma Institute, right? Yes. And I remember going yes. to that website years ago and, and like there yeah. was a quiz you could take and I was like, <laughs> oh, so see, it really is. <laughs> trauma, these adverse <laughs> religious experiences yeah. can count yes. as things that traumatize you. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Brian and I met over Twitter. Um, I was doing research for a, a doctoral project. It was not my uh, dissertation, but I was creating a resource for mental health providers, um, really on religious trauma. And I had posed a question to my audience. I mean, I had like 45 followers at the time, and I was like, oh, this is going to go nowhere. Um, and I just said, you know, if you, if you, could tell a therapist anything about religious trauma, what would you want them to know? And it kind of blew up. And I had like hundreds of responses overnight. And somehow in there, weeded through it. And I found Brian and he was like, I'm doing the same kind of work. And we connected and have been friends and colleagues ever since that point. And so, yeah, so then we co-founded the Religious Trauma Institute. Um, we, we've we had to kind of sometimes put it on the back burner. You know, it's still something we're passionate about, but we don't make any money from it yet. And so we've had to, you know, like had to prioritize it. But I will say we do have um, some courses coming out at the end of this year, this calendar year, and then consultation groups for next year, which both of us are really excited about. Um, just again, more resources. Yeah. That's super fantastic. Mm-hmm. The yeah. The field feels like you either really know what it is or like, like I live mm-hmm. in a rural area in Ohio and yeah. the term religious trauma is a lot less known here, but very much like yeah. people really yeah. need to understand what it is and how much of an impact it can make mm-hmm. on people. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you probably get this from your own training. We were taught that, you know, religion is generally a pro-social or supportive factor. And so it's something that people look to for a sense of purpose and identity and connection. And the only time we really heard about trauma or abuse is in these really overt um, instances such as clergy sexual abuse or uh, ritualistic abuse, cults, things like that. And so, um, you know, 
I certainly think religion can be supportive, um, but I think that we have to look at it as far as more than just simply it is either, you know, supportive or there's, you know, these really fringe things that happen. It's like, no, actually it can happen in the everyday church, you know, and, um, and we need to be aware of it as clinicians as well so that we can support our clients in a more effective way. Yeah. Yep. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. will, I'm sure, be talking more about your book as the interview goes mm-hmm. on. But in your book, you do like such a good job at detailing, like at a very accessible level, um, like the neuroscience of trauma. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, you get a little bit of polyvagal theory, all these things that are really starting to emerge from the, from the field of psychology and therapy. Mm-hmm. So could you, Give uh, like your your kind of intro lesson to how trauma manifests, religious trauma manifests in the body. Yeah. Well, for those people who read the book, you'll hear me say multiple times, religious trauma is trauma. Um, And the reason that's important is because there are some people who think religious trauma needs its own diagnosis and special categories and things like that. I actually disagree with that um, because I think that that would suggest that somehow religious trauma is so different than any other trauma that we have to have all new research, all new interventions, all new funding, all these things. When in reality, um, trauma is trauma and how that, you know, whatever it stems from, whatever environment or experience that stems from, how it lives in a human's body is generally the same, meaning kind of what trauma energy is. So how that manifests might be different. And the context of where the trauma is resulting from oftentimes indicates some of the things that we're needing to recover from. But in terms of just like, how trauma lives in our body, that's relatively the same from from person to person. So I say religious trauma is trauma because that means that uh, we can use all of the research and interventions and uh, resources that are already out there. So you said polyvagal theory. I'm like, yes, absolutely. There is, we should be using that. And so um, unfortunately, as you know, there's not one succinct definition in the clinical world of like, what is trauma? So I kind of mix up two of them where I'll say trauma is anything that is too much, too fast, too soon, that overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. Um, but the more quippy way that I say it is that um, trauma is not the thing that happens to you, but the way that your body or nervous system responds to the thing that happens to you. And so that means that trauma really is subjective. It is What is traumatic for you may or may not be for me and vice versa. It means that it's perceptive. So it does not necessarily have to be an actual threat that's in front of us that um, results in this trauma energy. And it's embodied, meaning that it lives in our bodies, not just in our brains. We can't think it away. And so the body part is really important and probably the most important thing when we're talking about trauma in my perspective, because what happens is that our body mobilizes when there is real or perceived excuse me, or remembered danger, our body, our nervous system turns on and goes into what we call a mobilized state. It's ready for action. It's ready to keep us alive, 
however we need to. In a lot of cases, that's fighting, so getting aggressive, or it could be flighting, so running away, or it could be uh, freezing up, maybe getting numb, dissociating. It could be fawning, which might be like ingratiating yourself or pleasing, trying to please somebody else. We engage in these automatic subconscious responses to try to keep ourselves alive. Now, our bodies are designed to kind of go into that into that state and then come out of that state. Um, and when that doesn't happen, when we're not able to come out of that or come back to a place where that we're feeling safe and stable and connected, that energy continues to live in our body, not in a woo-woo way, but I'm talking like adrenaline and cortisol and things like that. Um, it continues to live in our body. And over time, if we are not able to resolve that and what we call completing the trauma cycle, um, that energy can then create different dis-ease or disorder, and eventually can result in diagnoses such as PTSD or CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. But it can also result in a myriad of other physiological and psychological um, disorders as well. So that's, I mean, very high level, but that's a little bit about trauma in the body. Uh, There's so much more that we could say, but that's, yeah, and I should go back to then religious trauma. So when we say religious trauma, the word religion or religious is giving us a bit more context as to where that trauma originated from. And so one of the things I said a minute ago was, you know, kind of how how that energy lives in our body is going to be fairly similar from person to person, regardless of where it originated from. But the recovery piece, so what we're working on after that trauma is resolved that's going to be a little bit more specific to the context where the trauma originated from. So for instance, um, if you're working with maybe a soldier who came home from war, you're probably not going to have to work with like triggers of, you know, hearing worship music at Hobby Lobby and going into a panic mode. They're going to be like, yeah, that's not a thing, right? But they might need um, some work around triggers with like car backfire, loud noises, being in crowds, things like that, where somebody with religious trauma might be like, yeah, that doesn't bother me, right? So the recovery piece is going to be tailored a little bit more to the specific context of where that trauma occurred. And that's going to kind of help us with the, like, how do we live, right? So, you know, if we're coming out of religious um, environments, we're going to be looking at things like boundaries and relationships and differentiation and a lot of developmental stuff. Um, and, and so we then kind of tailor our treatment to what that person needs um, and where some of the disparities are um, from their own experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is... I don't know if it's a tangent or not, but I've been playing with the idea both in myself and with my readers about like childhood trauma versus religious Mm. trauma um, because they can look so much alike. And kind of what I'm hearing is that, you know, the body doesn't necessarily care where it came from because it's just like reacting in a certain Mm -hmm. way. But then the ways like the specific triggers that we're going to be working on later mm-hmm. are going to be yeah. dependent on where it came from, where, yeah. where the trauma came from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you see a lot of overlap with like childhood trauma? Because a lot of us were mm-hmm. raised, you know, in, in mm-hmm. high control religion, which mm-hmm. often also translates to high control families. Like mm-hmm. what, what do you kind of see with, with your clients and your research there? 
Yeah, I would say, I mean, I don't have a percentage to give of like this many people are, you know, grew up in high control religion and therefore, you know, demonstrate these symptoms uh, out of my clients. But I would say, generally speaking, when we're talking about people that grew up in this environment, we are looking at what I would consider developmental trauma, meaning that this was overwhelming, constant, and inescapable. So if you're a kid in this environment, you can't fight back. There's nowhere that you can run. So you're kind of left to try to survive by whatever means necessary. And over time, that can, you know, that becomes what is considered your normal. And then if you get out of that, like there's, there can be a lot of complications to your everyday life because we've never lived in, you know, kind of a non hypervigilant state. We've never had safe relationships. We don't know how to deal with differences. So I do find that there is a huge overlap and, and that is helpful in the sense that when we're talking about like childhood or developmental trauma, there are some really great resources, um, both like reading material as well as like clinical interventions and things like that. But I do, I, I mean, anecdotally speaking, I would say that most kids coming out of high control religion fit that complex trauma diagnosis, um, which is stemming from developmental trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That makes sense Mm -hmm. to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So can you, oh, actually what you were just saying about being afraid of differences and everything like that, Mm -hmm. like that, I feel like that is an example of something that we don't necessarily think off the top of our head. Oh, Oh, like that's how my religious trauma is manifesting. But like, I mean, 2016 to 2021, whatever felt, you know, Trump to COVID felt very stressful, I think, for everybody. But I definitely noticed, like, always being in this activated state. And, like, if Mm -hmm. there was any difference, it felt Mm -hmm. horrible and overwhelming. And I think being able to tie that, like, to not learn how to be okay with people who think differently than you. Or, like, in your book, Mm -hmm. you also talk about, like, switching from one fundamentalism to another, which is something Mm -hmm. that I... I've thought about and resonated with that idea too of like, well, we can't just swap sides. Like then we're still living in the same narrow framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if any comments on that. Yeah. Well, when we're talking high control religion, you know, one of the things that, um, makes it what it is, is a sense of inclusiveness because we exclude everybody else. And so in order to be included, there's very specific ways that we think, we talk, we live, we dress, we do all of these things that are the same, but not only are they the same, they are the godly and right way to do things out of our leader's interpretation of them, right? This is the best way that we can live out God's you know, purpose for our lives here on earth. And so with that lesson of here, we're doing it the right way, then everybody else is wrong. And wrong in high control religion means you're a sinner, you're evil, you're worthless, you're going to hell. In some cases, we're supposed to like witness to those people to try to bring them in to our, you know, bring them over to our side. Um, but in some cases, there is just a, a very like outstretched arm, like you stay over there, we are over here, like we are what in the world, but not of the world, right? <laughs> like I, that that phrase. Um, 
And so, yeah. So when that, when that is the dynamic, what it kind of registers in, um, in our physiological system, our nervous system is that if you are different than me in any way, that is somehow bad or dangerous. Um, and so different equals danger, which means all of a sudden I am on guard. I'm hypervigilant. Perhaps my prefrontal cortex is not online and I'm operating from that place of survival. And that's very, very common. The problem is our nervous system isn't trained necessarily. It's not fine-tuned enough to understand that like a difference of do you like Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi is not a life-threatening difference versus, you know, do you believe this type of person can live their life this way versus not, right? Um, And so our nervous system just registers that as difference, which means danger. So then that means a variety of different things in terms of how we might treat people, how we exist in the world, what we can do to people who are different than us. Um, That's often a thing in high control religion. If you're different than me, I can other you, I can dehumanize you, I can treat you however I'd like. The other piece of that is when we come out of systems like that, we have been trained what to think, not how to think. So we only know here's the rules that you follow. We don't know how to tune into ourselves. We only know how to look for external kind of uh, rules and what is okay, what is not okay, and a sense of connection. So then when we get out into a world where we don't have those rules or we don't have that um, those people telling us what we can and cannot do, that can feel very, very overwhelming for a myriad of reasons. And it oftentimes leads people to kind of look around and go, okay, where's the loudest voice? Them. Okay, I'm going to follow them. And so whatever that person says is right or good or the the path to freedom, I'm going to latch on to that and I'm going to abide by their rules. And what it is, though, is just another fundamentalist system, just with a little bit of a different message. And so I, I call it fundamentalist hopping. And it's not because we're desiring to be controlled or that we're a glutton for punishment. It's that we literally have not ever been trained to t- tune inward, to find internal safety and stability, to sit with the discomfort of difference, to grapple with mm-hmm. choice, things like that. And until we understand and resolve how that fundamentalism lives in our bodies, the likelihood of us continuing to hop from one group to the next is pretty high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is making me think of a question that one of my readers had, um, which is yeah. like in fundamentalism or high control of Christianity, we're often taught like not to trust your minds, like mm-hmm. your your own thinking is dangerous. Um, so she was wondering like, what can we do to learn to actually trust ourselves, our thought processes, mm-hmm. you know, to because yeah. we were taught, like you just said, what to think, not how to think. Mm-hmm. What can we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I often find that starting with the absolute smallest, least invasive thing possible is probably the best. So mm-hmm. it sounds so silly, but like when we are taught that there are is like one right way to do and to live, I mean, that, that covers pretty much every area of life, right? And so um, I don't like if, if I'm looking for like an active kind of thing with my clients, like an action step that they can take, we might identify one teeny tiny little thing where they could tune into themselves and just what is it that I want? So it could be that 
I go to a coffee shop and rather than just getting what I always get, I'm going to look at the menu and I'm going to identify what do I actually want. Now, maybe I don't get it because maybe, oh, no, I can't do that. But I'm going to give myself just a little moment to go like, what do I want? Okay. And then and then maybe I still get my my uh, regular order, but I've I've given myself a little bit of space to step into what we might start calling self. Um, and then we might try that a little bit more and a little bit more, but we start with as neutral as possible where we go, okay, to, to step into what might I want at a coffee shop probably doesn't feel as threatening as voicing my opinion in front of my parents whom I've never disagreed with in my life, right? So we don't want to necessarily cannonball into a pool that we don't know how to swim in. We want to like slowly dip one toe in and go for little tiny choices as if we're, it's like muscle memory that we're building. We're going, oh, okay, I can, I can do this thing and look, I'm, I'm okay. And I even ordered that coffee and it, I, I really liked it. It was really okay. I, I can order it again. And it sounds little or maybe even trivial, but having moments like that builds kind of that muscle memory of going, oh, I can trust myself. And then I can, you know, when somebody says, where do you want to go for dinner? I can go, I want to go here. And and maybe they disagree with me and I go, okay, that's fine. But But I voiced something, right? And it's relatively neutral. And so we're just looking for little tiny ways that we can start to build a sense of self um, and learn to trust ourselves in those ways. Um, I talk about this uh, like in various places where for me to like build my own trust and my ability to like tolerate difference and whatever, I watched reality TV. And in particular, I watched The Bachelor. And this was before there was podcasts and things like that. And so I would form an opinion I would do this on purpose. I would form an opinion of an episode and then I'd go read various blog posts and I would notice that they thought different than me. And I would sit in that discomfort kind of until it like swelled and then went back down, kind of like a wave. And I would realize like, okay, look, that person thinks this. I person, I think this. I don't need to, to switch to their perspective. I'm not asking them to switch to mine we can coexist. And that was safe for me because The Bachelor is very inconsequential to me, right? Like I'm there, I'm not going to like see these people, meet these people, anything like that. But it was things like that where I could come up against difference and trust that it was okay for me to have my own thoughts and my own opinion. And, and I didn't have to change them, but I could, if I wanted, I could, I could say, oh, that's a good perspective. I can lean into that. And so it's really finding some of those little tiny ways that help us build like that muscle memory, build the ability and the confidence to then do it a little bit more and a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And finding something that feels small enough where you can build on it. Yeah. Um, and yes. my yes. understanding is that you tend to do when you're when you're doing therapy, you tend towards more like somatic based therapies. Is that correctish? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. I do. Um, so I do I do believe we I take a very eclectic approach and especially with complex trauma I do mix like a top down as well as body mm-hmm. up so I think both are important um but I'm very body based yes. Okay. Yeah, cuz you talk about like letting the swell of emotion rise mm-hmm. and then it's going to fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't I don't know how you mm-hmm. Side note, everyone, this does not substitute for a therapy session, but if you had like 
some suggestions for like ways that people could approach healing from religious trauma stuff stuff like mm-hmm. what you were just talking about where like you're mm-hmm. kind of taking these little bites of trying something new yeah. or like in your book you talk about like coming back into familiarity with your body mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. yeah what yeah. what yeah. are there any other yeah. um digestible well, <laughs> things that mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm very, very eclectic in the way that I practice, which essentially means I don't believe that one thing is right for every single person. I think that, you know, what works for you may or may not work for me and vice versa. That said, I'm, I, I do find that having a foundation of internal safety tends to be the starting point for pretty much everybody. And the reason I hang my hat on that is not because I'm trying to um, force a certain way of healing. It's just that unless you're back in your own body and being able to be safe in yourself, you're always going to be depending on somebody else uh, to tell you what's okay and what's right and looking to other people to keep you exclusively safe. And I want to empower people and I don't know that I can do that if I'm requiring that you depend on me or somebody else mm-hmm. to you know, make everything okay for you. So I do hang my hat on building a sense of in, um, internal safety. What I mean by that is, um, you know, sometimes, okay, if we're, if we're in a religious system, the way that we feel safe is by following all the rules. We go, okay, I've done all these things, checked all the boxes, so now I know that I'm okay right? That's what we call the external sense of safety or an external locus of control because it's dependent on my external world and doing what's right by them. And then I'm okay. I'm connected. I'm quote unquote safe, or at least the illusion of safety. Okay. When we talk about internal safety, it's going, what are the resources that I have within myself that help me feel safe from the inside out, regardless of what's happening in the world? It's not about checking a box um, that somebody else has prescribed for me. It's about finding something in myself. And so when we're coming out of high control religions, especially, we are starting from scratch. Um, we, we, in most cases have not had experiences or long lasting experiences of internal safety because we've always been pointed in the direction of a higher power or a pastor or a parent who can be the one to offer us safety. So we are learning this for this, the first time a lot in most cases by ourselves. And the way I'll start that with clients and, and so for anybody listening, you don't have to do this activity, um, and you can do it at your own pace or not do it at all. But usually what I'll have them do, what I'll have a client do is imagine uh, a real, real or imagined place somewhere that, that has no kind of negative memories attached to it. An easy place to be like maybe a beach. Okay. Or maybe, you know, on the top of a mountain or waterfalls in the woods or whatever. And I'll just have them imagine that they're there. This is very similar to like a calm, safe space exercise that we might use in like EMDR or something like that. And, but we really heighten the senses of it. So if you were actually there, like look around, what are the things that you would see? What are the things that you could touch or taste or smell or hear um, and feel? And we just really kind of sink into that. And then we start paying 
attention to somatic cues, which means what's your body doing in that moment? So it might be like, oh my gosh, I'm taking deeper breaths. My shoulders have kind of gone down a little bit. I've relaxed into my seat a little bit more. I can, I I just feel like I'm a little bit more at peace. And I'll have them just kind of stay there for a moment and I'll just say, and and then we'll kind of come out of that and we'll process and I'll say, okay, let's use this as an anchor because let's notice that you felt more relaxed and more at peace, even though you weren't actually at the beach. There wasn't anything externally that was giving that to you that was coming from inside you. And so we use that as what I call like an anchor point or a starting point that we can always come back to and we start to develop that internal safety. And once that's developed, we have the ability to move into triggers or, you know, reprocessing trauma and things like that. Um, so that that's always my starting point. I will say it is much uh, easier said than done for a lot of people, myself included. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things like for me, I had to practice that multiple times a day, every day before it started becoming something that was a part of like, oh, I can tap into this in a moment where I am triggered or where I'm not feeling completely safe. So it, like I said, easier said than done, but that is always the place that I start if, if at all possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not like coming from your mind or like your cognition. It, it is finding a physical, like a somatic sense of this is how it is when I am safe mm-hmm. and at peace. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's coming from within you. And I think that's the most important point, especially when we're coming from these high control groups and systems and families and relationships. Um, and that that is the difference between having a to-do list or, you know, kind of to be okay in the outside world versus like, oh, I have all of this within me. And truly the reason one of the the biggest reasons why I love somatic experiencing, which is a modality of therapy um, or coaching, um, is that you don't need me as the practitioner to to do it with you. I'm I'm also trained in EMDR, but you need me. Like you as my client need me to be there to do that. And so to me, somatic experiencing and other somatic or body-based methods, I go, oh, you have all the tools. And yes, I can help guide you and support you in that. But ultimately, it feels ex- extremely empowering because when you leave my my office, you still have your body with you. And so that becomes the, the resource and the tool. So that's part of why, why I practice from that approach. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm wondering, like switching a little bit from the healing side to the trauma side, um, are there maladaptive like responses that you tend to see a lot of people showing up with who have religious trauma or like thought patterns, things like that? I I think, um, yes. Um, and I, I would say one of them is staying in their heads, um, Hmm. which is a coping mechanism that we were all pretty much taught. I mean, in religion, you're supposed to be cut off from your body, from your emotions. Your heart is deceitful above all things, right? You're supposed to live in your head. So there is kind of this coping mechanism of like, if I can just read all the right books, if I can cognitively understand and untangle these beliefs, then I should be good. And there oftentimes is a lot of shame and confusion when I'm still triggered by something or I'm having this physiological response. Um, 
And, and so I think that's definitely something I see. I also see a lot of like resistance to moving slowly. So we said trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon that overwhelms the nervous system's ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. What you'll notice is I didn't say it's too much of a bad thing. It's too much of a negative thing. I said it's too much of anything. And so, so that means if we are kind of plunging into this work with no resources available, that can actually be re-traumatizing. Even though we're doing something that's really good and healthy and supposed to help us, when we don't move into it at the pace that our nervous system is ready to go, we end up re-triggering and or re-traumatizing ourselves. And and I, I understand why people want to move fast because it's like, I just want to be over this. I don't want to have to deal with this. I get it. I was there too. But it really is like slowing yourself back down and giving yourself kind of the, the space to consider that if I go slow, at some point I'll be able to go faster. So that's something I really, really see. And then also just kind of like pushing themselves to do things that they're maybe not ready to do, meaning like different ways of living or or whatnot. You know, I think that there's a big um, push, especially if you're single coming out of this, it's like, oh, you've got to like redeem all your sexual years and go sleep with as many people and do as many, you know, high risk sexual activities. And for some people that might be great, but for a lot of people that can feel like very scary territory and often can lead to some pretty intense physiological responses. And, and then again, they're like, well, why can't I do this? I know this is, this is okay. And so I think also like just being, being able to go at your own pace is so, so huge instead of, um, I would say the maladaptive coping is looking to, again, external people to say, this is what you should be doing. This is what you should be practicing. This is what you should be thinking or whatever. And so I think that's usually the things I see the most. And then in terms of like, is there something they always think? Most of uh, most people that I'll work with, it's not that I have to convince them that they're traumatized, but, um, there is this rec- They're like, well, I wasn't abused by my pastor. Like I, it, it, there wasn't clergy sexual abuse or whatever. And, and so it's like helping them recognize that what happened to them was that bad and that it potentially did result in trauma. Uh, and that mm-hmm. can be a lot to wrap your mind around. Yeah. Well, feeling a little bit called out by all of that. So <laughs> Sorry. That was pretty accurate. (laughs) Staying up in your head. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We're curious, me and my readers, um, is there like a a certain type of personality or like kind of whatever Mm. background that tends to be more likely to be religiously traumatized? Mm. Okay. If you have any observations. Yeah. The general answer is no. But the anecdotal kind of answer of what we see happening is that typically the people that are the most committed are the most that are, are the most traumatized or the most impacted coming out of it. I think there's this misconception, you know, we hear it in different media outlets like, oh, they're deconstructing because they never really were a Christian or they never, you know, they just want to go out and sin or, you know, whatever it might be. And I would say, 
in most cases, that's that's not that's not it at all. It's they're they're seeing that there's many other problematic things. Going back to the 2016 election, I know of so many people that left and are you know were dealing with religious trauma that were the most committed in their churches. They were they were every time the doors were open, they were there. They were serving. They gave their lives to the mission of the church. They were, you know, memorizing huge passages of scripture in the Bible. They were spending as much time in prayer and worship as they could. I mean, I was one of them. You know, like my my leaving of that had nothing to do with a lack of commitment. In fact, I think I was so committed that at some point I was like, oh, wow, like I I got to look at this differently. I know some people will say like, I followed Jesus out the door, which I get what they're meaning. Sometimes though, it, that can feel a little bit weird, um, but they'll, they'll get to this point where they'll say, you know, I, I looked at what was happening and like, I, that's not the life of Jesus. And I had to, I had to choose Jesus over the church. And if that, if that set, um, phrase fits great. Um, but I, but I know many other people that go like, no, I just, I gave everything to this and I watched how they treated people or I watched how they dealt with social justice issues or not. Um, I watched, you know, how they dehumanize certain people or political stances or uh, social justice stances or or whatever it might be. And, um, and I think, I think the people that are often the most traumatized are the ones that really made this their complete identity, which is exactly what they were told they were supposed to do. Um, and so they're coming out of it being so wounded and so deeply traumatized because there isn't a sense of self, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they checked themselves at the door a long time ago. Um, so I, I, the reason I answered no on a general level is because of course there's always exceptions to the rule. And so, you know, I don't want to be like, yes, it's only these people that are the most traumatized. Um, no, anybody can be deeply traumatized, deeply wounded, but I do see kind of in an anecdotal way that the, that people that are the most wounded are oftentimes the most committed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yeah. sounds right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Speaking of, you know, leaving, leaving the church, leaving religion, <laughs> are, are there recommendations or maybe like religious trauma sensitive recommendations that you have for like, you know, starting your life outside of it, like finding a community mm-hmm. that can be the support that the church was like, especially thinking of a multi-generational community, because mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to find that like in other settings. Yeah. You have, yeah. you have, have you seen anything in your practice or? Yeah. yeah. Um, that is a hard one. Um, I was reading a book that was based off of somebody's doctoral research. Uh, the book is called The Struggle to Stay, and now the author's name is escaping me. But one of the things she talks about is she – well, she was studying women, uh, single women in evangelical church spaces. And why why did they stay? And what she noticed is you know, there was a struggle actually to stay. And so she was looking at like, what is it that would keep you in this environment knowing that you are not seen as equal or that you are being controlled or things like that? And truly, one of the reasons that they stayed was the community aspect in exactly what you said, the multi-generational, having access to all sorts of people. 
And so she talks about in the book, uh, in her research findings, that one of the things that so many people have to do truly is grieve that there will probably never be a place where they will have that many needs met Mm -hmm. and that much access to a diversity of people all in one place. And um, that's not a fun answer to grapple with. And yet it's, I still don't know where one of those places would be outside of a church. I really don't. I mean, when I look around my community, when I search, you know, different, I mean, different spaces in the U.S. that have unique, you know, kind of things going on, I haven't found anything that is quite as comparable. And also, I mean, that's part of what the church uses to kind of get people in because that is really alluring, right? Like it it just is. And so that's not a fun answer to hear, you know, to go back to your question because it's like, yeah, it's it's going to be lonely and finding community can be one of the things that is the most difficult. And mm-hmm. I know when I do like uh question boxes on my Instagram every single time, how do I find community? You know, how do I get over the the community that is no longer there? And it really is a process of grieving and then being intentional to find that in other spaces. And sometimes that's online. Sometimes it's getting involved in community organizations, um, you know, volunteering with different groups, maybe becoming a part of a a neighborhood, you know, book club or, you know, a soccer mom's club or, you know, whatever. But it, it, it takes a lot of intention. You know, another thing that's really awesome about churches is you're kind of all just like put together. It doesn't take a lot of effort. You know, it's like we have this one common thing and that binds us all together. And I don't have to use a lot of effort to create those relationships. And we get out of that and we go, yeah, I actually have to like go do the thing, right? Like I've got to go show up at the community meeting or whatever it might be. And so, you know, I do encourage people to Again, start slow because community can feel very frightening after you've gotten out of a community that may have those dynamics of power and control. And so uh, that's why I really love online spaces is because that it might feel safer to be behind a screen and part of a Facebook group or, you know, part of a, a Discord channel or something like that where it's like, okay. I can say something and close my computer because it feels like too much to, you know, respond or engage in a conversation. And those can be some really great ways to kind of dip your toe back into community. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really grateful for my, my like little Substack community. Cause it, cause it is multi-generational. I love hearing from yeah. like the experiences of people who are decades older than me. And then, you know, oh, people who are younger yes. than me and just like, like, well, we're not in person. It's not like anyone's going to babysit for each other, but like to at least have a really deep connection because we've all pretty much been through a similar religious trauma experience. Um, yeah. But it definitely yeah. takes like a lot of intentionality. But it, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's, it's titrated. I can close my laptop screen and like yes. be done with it for a little yeah. bit if I would need to. Yeah, mm-hmm. it feels good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love um, that you have that. Me too. I, you had just mentioned the power and control thing. I feel like I would be remiss to not Mm. have you talk a little bit Mm. because I think that you're known at least as Omdogri, right? For this power and control wheel. Um, Can you tell us about Mm. that and religious trauma, how that all fits together? 
Yeah. So it is modeled off of the same design of the domestic, the power and control wheel that a lot of people use in regard to domestic violence that was created by the Duluth project. Um, and so it just made sense. I did a lot of work within domestic violence in terms of like clinically speaking. Um, and, and then of course in my own story, and that is how I started to understand dynamics of power and control was through the lens of domestic violence, um, and my own experience and clients experience. Um, so when I created that, I kind of used, I had that framework in mind. And really what I started to do, uh, for those of you, if you have the book, it's the appendix and there's like a little design to it. Um, I'm actually opening it up so I can read the exact categories. But basically it's these um, eight categories that are in some ways a little bit innocuous, like, eh, you know what, that these, these things happen. This is part of a group. This is part of a church, you know? Um, and, and we kind of can just write them off. They're these, these, um, little behaviors like, um, you know, minimizing, denying, and blame, blaming where it's like, oh, we didn't, we didn't mean to do that. We, you know, and it's like, oh, well, gosh, okay. Yeah. They, they may not have meant to do that. Um, so there's eight categories, sorry, minimizing, denying, and blaming, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, threats, accusations, intimidation, economic control, sexuality, and gender defining loss of autonomy and isolation. And within the, the power and control wheel, then there's several examples of what that might look like in a religious context. And, um, one of the things that we know about dynamics of power and control is that it is what underlays abuse. Um, it's very, um, okay. So like if you walked into a church one Sunday and they said, we are demanding 10% of your income and you must not speak to another person outside of this church group and you must dress like this and you can only, you know, eat these foods or whatever it might be, you would walk right out of that church and be like, what was that? Right. You're probably not going to go back a second time. Now, in some cases, maybe. But but that's not what churches do. That's not what high control groups do. They they kind of love bomb you. They get you into the group. And then there's little teeny tiny things that they demand in terms of shifts in your life. And they say that these are the most godly or most spiritual or most holy ways that you are supposed to live. So for example, it's like, you know, they don't maybe tell you the first time you come, you're going to have to cut off your friends and family. But slowly over time, they might be like, are you really sure that you should spend time with this person? Gosh, this person isn't inside the church. Do you really think you can trust them? Do they really have your best interests at heart? Mm. You know, God says we've got to be careful about those people that um, are, are influential to us. And I don't know if that's a that's a godly influence. And so they use these little tactics where it's like, oh, yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess that's kind of right. Yeah, I, they do have influence over my life. But what that does is it actually starts to isolate you then from outside control. Or they'll say, you know, be careful of what goes into your mind. You know, only read these books, listen to this mm -hmm. music because the devil can get you. And all of a sudden you notice like, oh, I don't, I don't pay attention to a myriad of voices. There's only one tone that I listen to. So we look at these things and we go, okay, over time, as these little teeny tiny behaviors pile up on top of each other, um, they, they grow in their control, but it also grows in like the intensity of which you have to carry these rules out. And 
And it also increases the amount of consequence that you will receive for not following these rules. So it means that their people, in this case, maybe pastors, are gaining an element of power and control over your life. So they're being able to dictate the way that you live in nearly every area. Um, They're calling it good and holy and godly, and then are also determining the consequences if you don't live that way. And and you don't have the ability to be autonomous, have a sense of self, individuation, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, in uh, domestically violent relationships, we often see these behaviors as precursors for physical and sexual abuse. We don't see that as much in religious relationships. Uh, uh, context in terms of religious abuse context, certainly physical and sexual abuse does happen, um, but it's not as frequent as what we might see in a domestically violent relationship. But these dynamics and kind of the cycle of how they operate is still very, very similar to a domestically Mm -hmm. violent relationship. And we do know that over time, as abuse goes unaddressed, it doesn't just stop. It usually becomes bigger, more frequent, and more intense. Hmm. Yeah, man, that overlay, like being able to see that so clearly, just like, oh, oh that is <laughs> yeah. what is happening. I, I wrote a post mm-hmm. once called the, the bait and switch of evangelical Christianity, but like yes. understanding it as a like love bombing and this sort of like narcissistic abuse or like, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, that's mm-hmm. what's happening. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it feels yeah. weird to like be the, you know, be one of the first ones to say that but but then like mm-hmm. when people start speaking up and you know mm-hmm. clinicians are like actually yes <laughs> this is this yeah. this describes what you're going through mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. really helpful yeah and usually i had somebody ask me not so long ago like well this just this there's a lot of churches like this you know that oh, that have and i was like mm-hmm. like then <laughs> just like case it with that and and they said but how do you how do you know if a church is high control and how how do you know if they aren't and i said well you know what happens when somebody leaves or what happens when somebody speaks up or what, what happens when somebody shows up as themselves are they squashed are they silenced are they oppressed or is there freedom to come and go as they please is there freedom to show up as themselves and be accepted and connected without consequence or disconnection and those are some of the ways where you can you can tell then is this a high control group so yeah maybe they have this kind of way that they do life but this person can you know kind of come in off the street and they're like cool Come on, like you don't have to change at all, you know. And, uh-huh. and oh, if you don't show up, okay, like you know, we'll miss you, but we're not going to do things to you. We think about the concept of fair gaming in Scientology, which is this idea that if you leave our group, you are fair game. Um, we can do whatever we want, and the consequences you just have to put up with them. Now, most evangelical churches don't do that, but they do say that if you leave this church, like we're basically releasing you to the devil. So anything that happens to you, that's kind of your own fault. That's the devil having his way with you. So then, yeah, you get into a car accident. You're like, oh my gosh, what they said was right. Right. So it instills this fear also that would keep you in, in a group like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So, 
All right. You have given us so much amazing information today, and I'm really grateful for the time that you've spent on the podcast. Um, if people aren't already following you and know where you are on the internet, can you tell us how to locate you? Yes. Uh, thank you again for having me. Um, I am on all social media uh, platforms as Dr. Laura E. Anderson. Um, and that's also my website, DrLauraEAnderson.com, which is kind of a nice little hub where you can access everything that I do. Um, I co-host a couple podcasts. I write on Substack. I do coaching and consulting and all the things. And of course, my social media links are there. Um, you can also, if you're interested in knowing more about religious trauma coaching, uh, that are like looking for individual services, um, the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery is my company. And that's traumaresolutionandrecovery.com or trauma resolution and recovery uh, across all of those platforms. And of course, the Religious Trauma Institute is going to be putting out some trainings later this year. And so that's just religioustraumainstitute.com. And then I believe we are on Facebook and Instagram as Religious Trauma Institute. Yeah. Amazing. And there's excellent, excellent resources connected to all of those things. So thank you so much for your work in the field. Everybody should, I'm definitely going to link in everything to your book, but it is, it is just like the handbook for religious trauma. So hopefully give it a read. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me.